Hello, and welcome to Dig It. I'm Peter Brown, and hosting the show with me today is Chris Day. Hi, Chris. Hi, Peter. Wildlife is never out of the news these days, from saving endangered species to the implications of high-profile work such as High Speed 2, mass tree planting targets, to the big peat debate. There's never a dull moment when it comes to protecting our fragile planet. There's never been a more important time to save and protect our wildlife, whether we garden indoor or out. It's our responsibility to help to preserve our precious planet. So today on our Dig It podcast, we're delighted to be joined by Ed Turpin, Community Wildlife Officer from the Wildlife Trust. Hi, Ed. How do we find you today? Hi, Chris. Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. And uh, where, whereabouts are you? Can you put a, a bit of ge- ge- geography on our, uh, on our map? Yeah, so I'm quite central in Buckinghamshire. I'm just in the edge of Aylesbury at the moment, so uh, working from home. So, Ed, how did you get into wildlife conservation? So, I initially I trained as a primary school teacher, um, and I saw a really, really big disconnect between people and, and, and nature. Um, it wasn't just the kids, but there was the adults as well. So, it was parents and other teachers and some of my colleagues that I was training with at the time. Um, and that it really frustrated me. I'd grown up kind of spending quite a lot of time outdoors, um, and I wanted to kind of do something about it. So, um, I was lucky enough to start a traineeship with my local wildlife trust. Um, and that put me in a really, really fantastic position to, to get a job um, when one came up. That's great, yes. So I suppose then we perhaps should explain for our uh, listeners a little bit about the, the Berkshire, Buckinghamshire and Oxford Wildlife Trust. You know, how did it start, what it does, and what's your role uh, within it? Yeah, so um, the Berkshire, Buckinghamshire and Oxfordshire Wildlife Trust, um, so we're part of a, a national federation of 46 county wildlife trusts, um, but we're really very much your, your local um, independent charity. Um, we were founded in 1959 um, and we're based in Oxford, um, in Littlemore in Oxford. Um, but we manage 87-ish of our own reserves kind of around our three counties. Um, we have about 150 members of staff and 1,500 volunteers who, who help support those nature reserves. Um, and our, our work is, is basically we encourage others to help protect local wildlife. Um, and inspire and support local people and communities to, to, to get out there and take some action for nature. Um, we receive absolutely no core government funding, so our work is made entirely possible by the generosity of our members and other supporters, really. Um, so my role within that, um, I am one of our kind of community wildlife officers. So we have um, one of my colleagues who covers the west of our region, so that's Oxfordshire and, and West Berkshire. And then I cover the east of the region, um, which is, is Buckinghamshire and, and East Berkshire. Um, so our role is to, 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 to get out there, um, engage with local people and support them to make a difference for wildlife, um, whether that's meeting a community group or kind of supporting local councils. Um, we just kind of want people to be more connected with nature, really. Indeed, yes. And certainly your, uh, your fundraisers obviously regularly come to the garden centre and they obviously chat and wax lyrical about uh, obviously the, the great areas around the garden centre here over in Buckingham. Um, I think there's a couple of places to visit, the, the two visitor centres, one near Tring and the other in Bedfordshire. I think it's the College Lake site. And I think, I believe there, there's a, a live webcam which has a, a feed which you can see what's going on at the lake, which is fantastic. I think there's four educational centres there and there's also 80 reserves in the, 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 the uh, Buckingham Beds and Oxen area. And, of course, it's all you know free to go and explore. And I suppose nature... There's so many rare varieties of plants to look after there, and obviously many of your sites will be of, of SSI interest. Yeah, absolutely. So we look after a really, really staggering array of, of kind of wild, um, rare species. Um, um, there's so many, I don't think I could put a number on it, um, but it's, you know, it's everything from, from tiny orchids through to, to the majestic ancient woodland um, and everything in between, really. So just over 40 of our sites are, are at triple SI status at the moment. Um, up in Buckingham, there's a couple of local sites that, that your listeners might want to visit. Um, so you've got Foxcote Reservoir, which is really, really fantastic for um, aquatic plants. Um, and then in the winter, you'll get the, the waterfowl visiting. So you might get some teal and some shoveler ducks. Um, and then, of course, reed bunting as well. And then another reserve is, is Pilch Field. So there's some fantastic meadows over there with some really, really brilliant wildflowers and, and some different species of grass as well. Um, which is it, it's a fantastic site for um, damp soil plants, so meadowsweet, marsh valerian, um, and if you're lucky, there might be some, some marsh orchids over there as well. Right, so great for, for us gardeners and non-gardeners to go and explore. So, um, Ed, is there one thing, you'd, one thing you'd wish you'd known 
when you began your career? Um, I'm thinking of your, your career in, in, as, in, as a wildlife officer. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the one thing I wish I'd known was that it's okay to not know everything. Um, I felt that because I didn't necessarily have um, an ecology-related background or qualification, I was kind of a step behind some of my colleagues, which wasn't the case at all. And, and learning is such a key part of the process. Um, I'm still learning, and, and all of my colleagues today, even the most knowledgeable colleagues out there, are still learning. Um, and it's really, really exciting for us. It, it's very much part of our, our learning journeys and our, our conservation journeys as well. So, yeah, it's okay to not know everything. Um, and, and learning is quite a, an exciting challenge for us, really. Yeah, I think I think that's in all walks of life. That's sometimes used for little little knowledge. Sometimes it's dangerous, but actually to to absorb and uh, take in all the uh, new new information, you can accelerate that in a in a very dynamic way. And that's sometimes the best way of learning, isn't it? Literally on your on your feet. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah, gardens, large or small, uh, patio, yards, um, people with the, the minuscule of gardens, you know, a garden can and does create a mosaic to the not larger network of natural havens, which obviously links our urban spaces. I think they call them, I think it's green corridors, isn't it? And uh, certainly nature reserves and the countryside are an important part and integral to to the uh, the biodiversity in our uh, in our wildlife. So as your role as a community wildlife officer... Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of, of nature reserves? Yeah, so nature reserves are really, really important in supporting um, local wildlife, really. Um, they're all unique and they all provide a real range of habitat for an enormous diverse range of species, um, from, from mammals through to insects and, and everything in between, really. Um, they provide a really, really great place to connect with nature as well. So it's great for people to get out there um, and, and connect with nature and wildlife. Um, and it's so, so important for, for us to do that. Just 15 minutes outside can have such a, a big impact and such a huge benefit to our mental health and our well-being. Um, but our, our nature reserves aren't, aren't enough anymore, really. It's estimated that gardens make up a, about four times as much land as, as all of the national nature reserves across the country. So um, they are important, but our gardens are, are just as important at the moment as well. Indeed, and I suppose with garden sizes declining with new build areas, that is that is a worry, I suppose, in the, in the long term. But uh, I suppose hedgehogs, yeah, bats, your sparrows, song thrushes, and even stag beetles now are in decline in the UK. But if we, were, if we manage our gardens, obviously all wildlife will benefit, and these creatures and many more will find refuge, which would be good. It's not hard to help, and considering the, the wide host of wild um, air ideas and features... Um, Really, you can just sit back and enjoy and uh, see what visits. So one thing, Ed, if you could change in our day-to-day life, which could have an implication on our wildlife for the better, what, what one thing would it be? It's a really, really tough question. It's really hard to pick just one thing. There's so many small changes that we can all make that will make such a big difference. Um, I think for me, I'd say try and move away from chemicals. They can be really, really bad for such a huge range of wildlife. Um, everything from, from bumblebees through to, to hedgehogs. So if we can move away from chemicals, then, then I think that's a fantastic thing to do. And there's some great alternative ways of doing things as well. You could try some companion planting, so using one, one species of plant to attract some of the pests, um, or you could try um, you know, broken and baked eggshells, scatter around plants to keep slugs and snails off. And that just saves you know, having to reach for those really, really harmful chemicals and pesticides. Yeah, pesticides, which are really declining in, in big numbers now, if to, you know, say, retrospectively, you go back, you know, 10, 15 years, the, the number of chemicals on the shelves was obviously burgeoning. Now it's obviously uh, very, very few, which is, which is great news for our wildlife. Actually, thinking about what's happening at the moment, obviously we're in a, still in a major global pandemic. How do you think COVID-19 has impacted on our wildlife? It's really interesting, and I think we're still kind of coming to understand the full effects of, of the pandemic, really. Um, during the lockdowns, more people were outside and they were using their local spaces, which is really great, and it's fantastic to see people out there. And I think more people would have definitely found a connection to, to nature and wildlife during that time, just realised just how important it is. At the same time, I think there's definitely been an increase in some of the damage that we've seen on some of our reserves during the lockdown. Um, unfortunately, with the increase of people coming out, there's been that increase in... in, in um, damage and, and antisocial behaviour, which, you know, is, is quite disappointing and quite upsetting to see, really. But then on the flip side, you know, more people are working from home, so that has reduced the amount of traffic which we've seen we, we've seen on the roads. So hopefully that's done wildlife lots of, of good as well. So it, it's quite difficult to tell just how, how deep that impact is, really. 
Yeah, I suppose it's going to be the next few years which, when we start to see any any benefits uh, of all the, uh, the the lockdown situations and the the fact that nature's had time to breathe. I suppose over the last uh, sort of eighteen months or so, um, on the the effects of of, uh, of the way we garden. Obviously, uh, garden fences have been long popular, but of course, living boundaries can bring rich uh, f- range of flowers, scents, berries. Obviously, autumnal colour. And of course, wildlife. And at the garden centre here, we've obviously championed the, the use of mixed native hedges for, for decades to encourage that wide range of wildlife, which we, we, we long for. So whilst years ago it might have been appealing perhaps for the larger gardens and perhaps the estates and obviously the farms, even small urban gardens now can benefit from the, the enriched biodiversity a mixed hedge can bring. So what would be your um, recommendations, Ed, for the perfect wild? life friendly hedge i think one of my favorite species is hazel i i really i just like the way it grows i think it's got those fantastic straight stems and and branches and those those leaves are if, if you've ever felt them they're really kind of soft and furry they're quite quite lovely really but there's loads of other great options um field maple is fantastic so is dog rose um species like hawthorn is spiky um so that creates a really really fantastic kind of natural security barrier around your property um other species like holly and wild privet will provide that kind of winter evergreen colour. Um, and even the humble bramble is, is, is absolutely fantastic for wildlife. It provides a bit of shelter, um, provides some food for the birds in the form of berries. Um, and there's some flowers on there that will be great for pollinators as well. But it does require some pretty vigorous management. So that's something to be aware of for sure. Yeah, indeed. And uh, I suppose at this time of the year, we're, we're sort of uh, going to, well into summer now into autumn is knocking on the door that we can start thinking about trimming our mixed native hedges back after obviously over the the, the birds and the fledglings have flown. Uh, it's obviously a good, safe time to, to do that. Thinking about um, encouraging wildlife into our gardens, obviously, if you introduce a water feature, not just the fish for the newts and the dragonflies and the pond skaters, uh, you also provide water for food uh, for the birds, and obviously you'll have a wide range of other plants as well. Any tips, Ed, on what tips you would bring to create that perfect wildlife pond? Yeah, ponds are such a fantastic thing to do for wildlife. They support such an enormous range of species. So they're really, really great to have in your garden if you're trying to look out for wildlife. Um, there are some important things that you can think about when you are looking at creating a wildlife pond. Um, so the best wildlife ponds have kind of really, really good supporting features. So, for example, a ramp is really, really essential for any hedgehogs that fall in. Um, hedgehogs are really great swimmers, but will drown with exhaustion if they can't get out of the pond. So a ramp out is such a simple thing to do, but actually makes such a big difference for wildlife. Having a kind of shallow area as well is really, really important. Um, it creates a nice patch for birds to have a bit of a bath and have a drink as well. And it also creates a, 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 an area where um, insects can perch and have a drink as well. Um, it might also create a bit of mud and those muddy patches are okay. Um, for, for they're really great for newts and, and other amphibians. Um, but if you are creating a pond and once you've got that set up and ready to go, it's really important to be quite patient and just avoid transferring wildlife between ponds because that can spread diseases. Um, so just, just leave your pond and wildlife will find its own way there quite quickly. Um, wild ponds are seasonal. Out in the countryside, they will dry up in the summer and then refill again in the winter. Um, but that means kind of most wildlife is, is quite well adapted to that. So if you are concerned about the water level in your pond, the best thing you can do is to use rainwater from a water spot to top that up. Um, tap water is, is far too chemical heavy so so some recycled rainwater is the best thing you can do to help up a pond as i say and you don't need a, i mean we use the word pond but actually any small amount of water within the garden will do the job i suppose yeah absolutely so if you don't have space for a pond you could create a mini pond so anything from you know an old washing up bowl or a dustbin cut in half or even smaller sunken plant pots that you could submerge into the ground even the old kitchen sink that could all be made into a a, a kind of container pond um, if you've got children or pets that you're concerned about with, around a bigger pond you could do something much smaller and if you haven't got the space for that even just a dish of water is fantastic and mm. if you do put a dish out it would be great for birds to have a drink from but by putting some some rocks or some marbles or something like that in there just with a little bit out of the water it will create a nice perch for things like bumblebees to rest on while they have a bit of a drink so there are some great other ways of, of getting some water into your garden as well I see pieces highlighted in the on the Wildlife Trust website, Ed. And what advice would you give to the alternatives being offered? So uh, peat bogs are out in the wild are home to some quite rare species. 
Um, for example, the sundew, which is one of our native carnivorous plants, which is really, really fantastic to see out in the wild, um, as well as birds like skylarks. They're quite at home on peat bogs. So if we can help them by making small changes in our gardens, then that's a really, really fantastic thing to do. Um, a lot of the peat-free alternatives that are available now, um, they used to be uh, probably more expensive than their, their counterparts. Um, but I think they're becoming kind of more common to see now and, and more affordable in the process as well. Um, a lot of the alternatives are really great, and I've used quite a few in my garden, um, and they work just as well as any of the peat-based products, um, which are, are really harmful to, to quite important habitats. Indeed, yeah. I mean, I must admit, at home I've been using uh, it's a New Horizon product, and uh, that at the moment is the top of my, my favourites. I think it's just the management of, of these uh, peat-free composts. Obviously, they're different. They tend to hold or not, tend not to hold a lot of water because cause peat absorbs moisture, as we as we know, that's one of the biggest biggest problems there. But um, it's interesting. On your uh, on your website, there's some quite in- interesting information and advice for, for for gardeners when they go out, or for anybody who actually goes out buying to actually look at the the bags as well. Because at the moment, the inf- information we're getting on uh, compost bags is a bit varied, and I think the the whole standard of labelling probably <laughs> needs to be improved. I think it's been highlighted already. And I think uh, also a lot of custom, our customers now are being a little bit more vocal in their fact that they are looking for peat alternatives. Um, but of course, it's that transition, isn't it? From getting, as you say, you get used to using your own compost and then suddenly you, you've got something completely different to, to work with. Absolutely. Yeah, so which is which is good there. Okay, um, it's a question we get asked countless times at the garden centre is how to attract butterflies into the garden and... How to attract perhaps the more attractive ones if if the rivers are such a thing? I mean, I thought all oh, butterflies are attractive, but never mind. So, any thoughts on uh, on encouraging your your, your your butterflies? Yeah, so a good rule of thumb when it comes to butterflies and, and pollinators in general, really, um, is that if if a plant smells nice to us, it's probably going to be quite attractive for pollinators like butterflies. Um, so, if you aim to plant in in sunny but relatively sheltered spots, you should be on the right track. Um, butterflies like that sunshine. But if it's quite breezy, then they'll struggle to stay around for too long. Um, herbs are fantastic. So lavender, thyme and sage are all great options. And the benefit is some of those can be used in the kitchen as well. Um, but then other plants, primroses, bugle, forget-me-not, hawthorn, birds such as foil, bramble, and, and even the humble ivy um, are all great for, for butterflies. Another thing to consider is that actually the more caterpillars you have, the more butterflies you're likely to get. So, for example, um, ladies' smock is fantastic. The orange tip caterpillars. Um, bird citra foil is great for, for common blue caterpillars um, holly and ivy is, is great for, for the holly blue um, and even the humble stinging nettle is enjoyed by several species peacocks red admirals small tortoise shell and common caterpillars will all use um, stinging nettles as a, a larval food source yeah indeed i mean we're all taught aren't we to, to leave a, a good patch of stinging nettles in at the bottom of our gardens um, for, for that reason i suppose and i think the least we can do as, as gardeners is to do that um but also um I just wondered if the the the, the wildlife trust had any had done any surveys. We mentioned the obviously the big butterfly watch, but uh, does the uh, the wildlife trust have a, a a similar sort of scheme where they track the species perhaps in their nature reserves? So um, we we will work with the um, the surveying um, organisations. So um, for example, the, the the big butterfly count and, and big butterfly watch, all those kinds of things, and um, they will all feed in and, and we'll be able to access that data. So mm-hmm. if you can just get out and count some butterflies. That's a really fantastic thing to do, and it, it all comes back into conservation and helps, um, you know, several organisations really. Yeah, exactly. And it's only—I mean—you have to take. I think fifteen minutes is all the time you need to take for the uh, the big uh, butterfly count, which is good. Now, of course, as well as encouraging um, butterflies and moths, um, what's best to perhaps encourage our our uh, good old hedgehogs? Oh, they're, they've seen a massive decline. I mean, I saw a stat. Is it sort of thirty percent have been lost in the last ten years? I don't know if that's uh, that's a bit of newspaper. Um, uh, I don't know hype, but I mean it's a f- incredibly high figure. Yeah, so that's that's right. Actually, it is, it is about thirty percent, and and it's it's quite staggering, really, when you when you realise actually, you know, a lot of people now haven't even seen a, a live hedgehog. So um, there's lots of things we can do. Um, one of the most important things to consider is, is how the hedgehog is going to get into your garden. So access is really, really important. Um, so just a hole at the bottom of the fence is absolutely ideal, and, and that means that hedgehogs can get between gardens. So if you cut a hole in your fence, um, it's really, really important that you, you talk to your neighbours and encourage them to create similar access so that hedgehogs can get between gardens and, and access quite a wide area. Um, there is 
specific hedgehog food available, um, which works really, really well, but it can be a little bit more expensive. Um, so you can, as a cheap alternative, you can use cat and dog food. Um, but if you do, just make sure it's higher than 80% meat content. Otherwise, it's not too good for the hedgehog. Oh, okay. um, and then a few things to avoid. Um, milk um, and fish. Hedgehogs are intolerant to, to both milk and fish. Um, bread has no real nutritional value to hedgehogs. Um, and, and avoid putting mealworms out specifically for hedgehogs um, in really, really high quantities. It has too much um, phosphate in them, um, which can then eventually kind of reduce the calcium in hedgehog bones. Um, but if you've got a few that's under a bird feeder that have fallen out of a bird feeder with mealworms, that's absolutely fine. But I just, I wouldn't, I would say avoid putting mealworms out specifically for hedgehogs. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't realise that the uh, the food's there. Um, I noticed we, we do um, a product in the in the shop called, uh, uh, well, it's it's, uh, it's called Wild Things Hedgehog Food. And that, looking at the ingredients, is dried fruit, berries, nuts, and crunchy nuggets, which... Uh, does sound very unappealing, perhaps, but perhaps very appealing for our, for our hedgehogs there, which is good. And what about obviously putting water down? I mean, I, I suspect they'll obviously take a lot of moisture. They'll need a lot of moisture to support the foods they're, they're taking up. Yeah, absolutely. So if you can put a small dish of water out, um, then that's a really, really great thing to do. Ponds are, are fantastic. If there's a shallow area so that a hedgehog can access that, that water, um, then that's a great way of providing a, 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 a source of drinking water. But if you don't have a pond, just a small dish will make such a big wildlife for, for not just hedgehogs, but all sorts of different things. Mm. Um, so you could even put um, a stone or a marble in there um, and then bumblebees can land on that and they can have a drink while they're there as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of, I mean, certainly our customers here and I at home are very conscious now of, I mean, the limited use of, of slug pellets in the form of, of the organic forms. But of course, they're going to be pretty toxic to anything really, which is, is going to be taken in any large quantities. So I suppose if you know you've got a hedgehog in, in the garden, just don't use any sort of uh, uh, slug baits at, at all. Avoid those. Use the, the organic things, the, 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 um, the, the, the coffee grounds and the... Uh, uh, the, the, the yeah the, the broken shells and all the other sort of organic safe modes of, of control would, would be best I suppose yeah absolutely yeah and and, and it's important that, that you know chemicals that might be used on a lawn or something like that will also have an impact on on not just hedgehogs but also bumblebees as well which we really really need to keep our plants pollinated and um, so it, it's believed that actually um, the, the chemicals that might be used on a lawn to, to kill weeds or anything like that um, will have a huge impact on um, bumblebee populations um, and can reduce their, their reproductive rate as well. So it's important to, to, to move away from chemicals as much as possible, really. Yeah, most definitely. Um, obviously, birds obviously play an important part in the mixture of, of wildlife in our gardens. So um, obviously, we, we were conscious of the, uh, the, you know, the, the RSPB big bird watch results. I think the house sparrow came in number one uh, this, this time around. But again, thoughts on, on, on creating the right sort of habitat for our birds? Ed. So water is again another really really important thing, and, and a bird bath is a great way of doing that. Um, or again, if you've got a pond with a shallow area, that will be fantastic for birds to have a drink and a bath as well. Um, feeders are great. Studies suggest that birds don't actually rely on garden bird feeders, but they are quite important for them. Particularly as it starts to get cold in, into the winter, it's a great way of making sure that they've got some a, a good source of food as they start heading towards breeding season in spring. Um, so just if you're positioning bird feeders, just try and position them um, away from any fences or anywhere where a cat could pounce um, and near a, a hedge or a bush so that the birds have got some cover to, to fly off into um, if a sparrowhawk comes over looking for some lunch. Yeah, for sure. Now, um, certainly at the garden centre here, we're, we're conscious that as we sell lots of hedging plants, as that's been one of our specialist areas, monkjack deer obviously can create all sorts of problems, quite expensive problems for people who are putting in their new hedge line. Um, obviously, the, the, the monk jack's been around for, for a while. Um, obviously it's made its way into the southeast of Britain now. I think, uh, I think it, escaped, well, it came out of Woburn Park, if uh, memory serves me correctly. And uh, we do see them, obviously, right across uh, our, our area of North Buckinghamshire. Do you have any tips on, on keeping these monk jack deer sort of out of our, our plots, our gardens? Is there any, any methods? So, I mean, if you really, really want to definitely stop a deer like a, like the muntjac, really, the best thing you can do is, is some sort of deer fencing. For muntjac, they're quite a small species of deer, so about a metre and a half tall, um, and that should stop them getting through. But there are other deterrents that you could use. Um, I've heard of some pretty strange ones, mothballs, uh, human hair, and apparently human urine um, will, will put them off from, from coming into an area. I've also heard of people using um, scented soap strung up, 
Um, but do be aware that if it rains, then you might end up with some, some interesting soil quality underneath <laughs> where that's dripping. Yes, for, <laughs> you've painted a really good picture there, Ed. Yes, <laughs> so, yeah, no, no, no. I think that's, that's right. I mean, there is a product we, I mean, we sell at the garden centre, which is available everywhere, and that's I think Grazers. They do a product, and again, it's it's all based on smell, isn't it? It's uh, obviously smells they don't like will detract, hopefully. But of course, they have to be reapplied as they're sort of quite a viscule thing. They will need to be. Uh, reendorsed. I think you can sort of use that on cloths and hang those in areas around where the Munchak might come in. But uh, it's a difficult one. I suppose with Munchak, it's inevitable you get rabbits. Um, I mean, rabbits can cause all sorts of problems, especially frustrating for us gardeners. Um, what about sort of suitable deterrents? I mean, we, we're talking about how to keep these uh, wonderful animals out, but I mean, they they do <laughs> they do cause us, us lots of issues. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there are some um, kind of plant species in particular that rabbits seem to avoid. Um, so peonies, hellebores, foxgloves, um, daffodils, and apparently snowdrops as well um, will all be avoided by rabbits. Um, then more kind of aromatic species, so, so lavender and rosemary might also work. Um, but the problem is different rabbit populations have slightly different tastes. So um, what might put one population of rabbits off might actually be attractive to another. So it's quite difficult. Um, you could try a barrier around a vegetable patch, some sort of mesh or nesting. Um, but do be aware that if you do that, it might reduce access to something like hedgehogs, which you probably want to encourage because they eat all the slugs. So it's a, a bit of a catch-22, I'm afraid. Right, OK. So, uh, yeah, and obviously using deterrents like uh, spiral tree guards, these obviously plastic guards we, we, we use and it's quite good these days there are um, biodegradable versions coming out on the market now a lot more expensive mind you but at least they are there if if people want to start to protect their young little whips as, as young young as young plants um we do have got a few questions actually have come in from uh, various sources um one of them uh, refers to spiders now when people talk about spiders especially ones which bite um maybe we'll have people turning off this podcast but we want to try and reassure you i'm sure there's not that many um <laughs> but this in this instance um are there any poisonous ones as this particular um person claims that it was bitten and a few days the site became quite itchy are there problematic spiders out there we need to be aware of so all spiders can bite and um, that's how they catch their prey but only a really really small number have fangs that are actually tough enough to human skin um, we have about 650 species of spider in the uk um, and it's believed only 12 of those have been recorded to bite humans um, so you've only got 12 species to worry about okay out of those 12 there's only a few that will kind of leave any significant effect so you've got the tube web spider um, and then the noble false widow spiders as well um, they will leave slightly longer impact slightly longer effects um, and in very, very rare cases, there may be hospitalisation, but that is one in a million, really. Um, there are a few other species that bite, the woodlouse spider might do, um, and can cause some itchiness, so that could be what your, uh, what your friend has been bitten by. Um, but most typically, on the whole, most spiders aren't aggressive, so um, you should be fine to pick them up and put them outside. That's so reassuring to hear. That is so reassuring to hear. Thank you for that. And another question on... Um on bird foods that perhaps attract smaller birds, such as the obviously wonderful blue tits, but that pigeons, and I can actually completely sympathise with this, don't like. Can you get sort of uh, specific <laughs> bird foods for specific species? So there are certain things that certain species will be drawn to. For example, um, like niger seed is fantastic for species like goldfinches. Um, but when it comes to pigeons, unfortunately, they are not too picky. So Although they do prefer seeds like corn and wheat and barley, pigeons will pretty much eat anything they can get their beaks on. So what you can do is you could try hanging a feeder um, in a, a certain place. If you hang it, it should be probably too delicate for a pigeon to, to, to clamber onto. Um, they are not particularly graceful birds. Um, so by hanging the feeders, you'll create better access for smaller birds like blue tits or starlings. Um, some of the spring-loaded um, feeders that have squirrel baffles um, some of those work quite well. They can be um, sensitive enough that actually if a pigeon lands on it, it will pull the shutters down and the pigeon can't get to the food. Um, and then other feeders, some of them have kind of like a mesh grill around them um, and that creates a gap that small birds can get through, um, but it does keep the pigeons out. Um, and then another kind of final option, if, if you are 
really, really keen to keep putting food out for the birds as well. You could put some food on the ground away from your bird feeders and that will create kind of a, a more attractive um, source of food that the pigeons will go to and will leave your lovely bird feeders for all of the smaller garden birds. Yeah, great, great, great advice. Yeah, uh, I also found this year actually magpies have been quite a problem on bird feeders, um, which quite surprised me because I always thought they tended to keep away, but uh, not this year, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, <laughs> back in, in May, we had No Mo May, and uh, it, it went down, well, it was quite controversial. A lot of the newspapers picked it up as well, but I'm thinking, of course, for... Uh, you guys at the Wildlife Trust, this was probably a, a wonderful message to, to push forward that wildflowers which grow in our lawns and pasture areas are basically left to, to grow and flourish through the month of May so they can actually seed and can actually help our wildlife uh, species. But I suppose the question is, are wildlife wildflowers actually beneficial after they've flowered? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they look fantastic while they're flowering. But if you want to see them again, then you need to leave them so that the seeds will be distributed. Um, so that might be whether that's kind of blowing in the wind or by passing bird or um, a, another kind of creature that might walk past and, and distribute the seeds. If you want them to come back, then you need to leave them so that they can go to seed um, and then come back up again in, in the future. Um, but the seeds are also really, really important for wildlife. For example, birds like goldfinches absolutely love teasel heads um, and then things like sunflower heads as well, which aren't necessarily wildflowers, but sunflowers. Um, are fantastic um, for insects and like like beetles. They love to hide in them and they will live kind of all around those flower heads. So just by leaving them, you are helping wildlife as well. Um, just letting them go to seed. Yeah, I mean, sunflowers and teasels certainly sort of featured in, in my garden last year and, and they're starting to, to do their thing now, which is which is great. And they look so good. They take a bit of space. Well, certainly the, the, the teasel certainly gets sort of six or seven foot across and gets to probably 10 foot high, but <laughs> makes such a uh, an imposing plant. And people might say, yeah, it, it looks a bit like a bit of like a weed, but then a weed is only a plant growing in the wrong place, I always tell people. So they can uh, look at it that, that way. So... Um, Ed, what advice would you give to someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? Um, I think there's, there's a few things, really. So you don't have to have a relevant degree or qualification. Um, it might be helpful, but it's far from essential. So you can definitely get into, into conservation without having um, a relevant qualification. Um, volunteering is a really great way to get some experience. Um, and traineeships, a lot of wildlife trusts offer traineeships. They're a really, really fantastic way of getting kind of a foot in the door, really, to start that job um, and, and get your career moving. Um, and the other thing is, is to enjoy it, really. Conservation can be quite challenging, but it's such a rewarding job. You know, we get to spend so much time outside and meet some fantastic people um, and we get paid to, to be outdoors, really. What more do you want? Exactly. That sounds perfect. It sounds like working in a garden centre <laughs> and working in the garden <laughs> trade, yeah, which is good. OK, um, on that basis, then, uh, who are the three people who've been most most influential to you with with your, with your wildlife career, and then obviously your previous teaching career? Um, oh, it's a really really good question. So I think I would be um, I, I wouldn't be deserving of a good career in conservation if I didn't say David Attenborough. Um, he's such an inspirational figure, so I, I'd be wrong to not have him on my list. Um, another figure for me is, is definitely Steve Backshaw. Um, who is obviously quite relevant locally. He, he lives in, in our three counties. Um, but yeah, he was definitely quite inspirational for me as I was growing up, seeing him on the television quite a lot. Um, and then I think it, I, it's a bit cheating, I suppose, if I say my parents, but, but both my parents, my mum and my dad, um, they were the ones that, that got me outdoors when I was a kid, really. So um, their, their influence, they got me out and, and kind of inspired me to, to enjoy nature and, and to care for it all, really. So I, I couldn't not have them on my list, I don't think. Most definitely, yeah. Our inspirations, yeah, from early age are so so important, aren't they? I think when I'm thinking about wildlife, um, Chris Baines, um, I remember him on the TV many years ago, and he did quite a lot of TV uh, sort of specials. This is probably the days before, really. Well, Country Files been going for I don't know how many years, but uh, he did, used to do a wildlife series, which I found really good, and he sort of inspired me. And he's obviously gone on to do sort of things wildlife related in in sort of very commercial setups which i think is which is quite important that you can bring this wildlife element to to uh, uh, commerce which of course is important if there's going to be that sort of good relationship i think that's quite quite important um 
if you could step into your own shoes, what would you what would you have asked yourself that I haven't today? Oh, um, I think I would ask what my favourite native species is. Um, that would be my question. Okay, and could you give us an answer? Uh, oh, it would probably be a red kite. Um, I like I mentioned earlier, I, I kind of grew up in Kent. I was really lucky if we saw two or three red kites in a year and, and, you know, living in this part of the country, we get to see them all the time and they're such magnificent birds. So that's quite exciting for me. But the novelty still definitely hasn't worn off yet. <laughs> no, they're, they're amazing birds. And as you're right, I think, I think I think I saw my first red kite probably 15, maybe 20 years ago over in South Buckinghamshire, um, going towards... Um, yeah, that part around Wickham area, um, but now, of course, in North Buckinghamshire, they're quite common. Um, if that's the right term for a, a bird, which is so majestic, <laughs> but they are just—they're on the landscape and they're on the wing all the time, aren't they? So, yeah, good, great choice. Um, on your website, on the uh, Wildlife Trust website, there's top ten things to look out for each month. Um, what would be most likely to see in the month of August, which perhaps are uh, our podcast uh, listeners might want to, to think about? Yeah, so August is a really, really exciting month. Um, one of the most exciting things I think you can see is probably butterflies. So the painted lady butterflies are all out there. They're going to be starting to look really, really wonderful. Um, and if you visit anywhere that's, that's short grassland, um, you will hopefully, if you're really lucky, you'll see some of the Adonis blue butterflies, which are absolutely spectacular. I don't know if you've ever seen one, but they are like lightning with wings. They are so beautiful. Um, a couple of other things, so you could look out for heather. Um, it's quite often overlooked as just a quite small, unassuming plant, but actually it's some really, really beautiful forms and, and the colours on there are absolutely fantastic. Um, and then I think the last thing is gorse. So the flowers have probably gone by uh, by August. Um, but if you have a listener as you're walking past, you might hear some popping, which is actually quite interesting. It's the seeds that are popping off and being catapulted away from the parent plant. So um, August is, is quite an interesting month. So. Yeah, lot to look out for. Indeed, uh, you, you mentioned uh, butterflies. One thing I haven't really seen an awful lot of yet, or are the, the cabbage whites? Are they are they late this year? I wonder, with because of the the cold spring. But uh, I don't. I've not seen as many sort of dancing around the garden, going towards my brassicas just yet. I'm not too sure uh, where where they are. But um. yeah, a, a lot of people have said that they haven't seen as many butterflies this year. Um, we think it's down to to the weather being a bit cooler. You know, we're into July and it's only really starting to kind of warm up now. Um, so we think it's probably due to it being perhaps a little bit cooler earlier in the year. Um, so hopefully as the weather warms up, we'll start to see lots more wonderful butterflies out there. Oh, I hope so. Yes. Um, um, Ed, obviously, um, we work on the, the social media things these days. Um, can any, where can our listeners perhaps connect with you online? Do you do a, a blog or do you do, any, uh, are you, do you do anything within the Wildlife Trust people can follow you? Yeah, absolutely. So we are on kind of all the usual social medias. So um, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, we have um, a, a profile on all of those. So if you just search for um, the, the, the B-B-O-W-T so or the Barks, Bucks and Oxfordshire Wildlife Trust, we should come up quite quickly. Um, if not, just have a look on our website. So that's bbout.org.uk. Um, you can have a look on there and you can kind of find all our social media links and there's some great articles and, and, and activities you can try in your gardens on there as well. There certainly is. Yeah, we'll put all the uh, all the links onto our uh, show uh, show notes uh, attached to this podcast. That'll help. And um, and a couple of finally finally questions. Uh, and we do this to all our guests. What piece <laughs> of the wildlife, uh, animal species, plant would you like to be stranded with on your desert island? This is such a good question. Um, so I've thought about this, and I think I've decided that I would like a, a birch tree. Okay. It would provide some, some nice shade, uh-huh. a bit of shelter from the sun, some firewood, and, and birch wood smells really, really lovely if you burn it. Um, there's lots of sap, so I could potentially drink that if I was stranded. Um, there's a bit of wood if I wanted to whittle some stuff from crafts and things. And birch grows really, really quickly, particularly in quite sandy soils, so... Um, it would hopefully replenish my supply so I could, in theory, hopefully with a couple of birch trees, I'd be all right. Yeah, and, and if you had two, you could have uh, yeah, that would be a good place for your hammock to be strung up, I suppose, on your, on your desert island too. So, yeah, perfect. Perfect, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff, okay. And finally, finally, we usually ask uh, our guests for a, for a joke. So, uh, a brief explanation of an acorn. In a nutshell, it's an oak tree. Oh, dear. 
Oh, my word. There we go. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we can't really follow that, can we? <laughs> yeah. Well, from, we sm- uh, from small oaks grow mighty trees, so that's good. Ed, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today, and we're so delighted that Beaubont, as the Garden Centre's chosen charity this year, um, so it's thanks to you and the great work carried out across all the wildlife trusts across the reserves um, the, and of the projects across the UK, especially to those in the, the Berkshire, Buckinghamshire and Oxford group who can t- continue to campaign. Obviously, fierce campaigns with environmental issues going on at the moment and bring to the fore local community issues, which are obviously close to their heart. Thank you very much. And uh, we hope you've, uh, you've enjoyed the grilling of questions today. Absolutely, yeah. It's been loads of fun and, and, and thank you for the time and, and all the support of your visitors as well. No, thank, thank you very much, Ed. Thank you. You take care. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that was a very interesting interview with Ed there, wasn't it, Chris? It was indeed. Uh, I loved his idea of um, using rainwater to top up your wildlife pond. I'd never really thought about that because obviously tap water's full of chlorine and indeed. same as when we used to have fish tanks and fish ponds um it always had to use a dechlorinator but using rainwater is so much better i should imagine for nature for sure and i was gonna say that that fact of the fact there's there is over two million garden ponds in the uk that's a, a conservative estimate um it gives an indication that our fascination for attracting a whole plethora of different type of wildlife is definitely there because yeah, i think the most unusual thing i've ever seen in a garden pond is um grass snakes all oh, right and they are uh, they're okay. terrorists they eat goldfish and i'd never realized sort of how sort of good a predator they are until i'd seen them and they literally cleared it in a sort of really? goldfish pond one of my neighbors goldfish ponds and mm. yeah over a very short period of time uh, and then obviously moved on to the next um, pond or wherever he, he slithered off to. But I was, I was amazed and I didn't realise sort of grass snakes swam or ate fish. But no. you learn something new every day about nature, uh, don't you? You do. And I wonder, uh, Peter, would, would herons, I know they go after koi, but would they go after grass snakes? I think they do eat snakes. They certainly eat frogs and mm. toads and um, probably, uh, yeah, because grass snakes aren't that big. I mean, that's no. the nice thing about them and obviously talking about sort of biting spiders we're really Indeed. going into vicious wildlife <laughs> this, this <laughs> do, show aren't yes. we but yeah no thankfully my, all my encounters with grass snakes um mm. uh, the, the couple of times i have seen them have been um, totally peaceful <laughs> yeah yeah i think obviously on the garden center here a few years ago i spotted one basking in the uh, in our nursery fields okay uh, when i was walking the dog yeah uh, i must admit it did take me back a little bit it, it slithered off very quickly obviously frightened of us you aren't they? They just don't like uh, to be intimidated. They don't, but they also, I don't know whether it's just me being a coward or what have you, but they certainly frighten me. When you see them, you're like, oh, don't want to see that. Uh, yes, like, yeah, off, yeah. off you run. But, yeah, um, indeed. But they, they play an important part, and I think that's the whole essence of, of uh, Ed's chat, really, was the, the fact that we really need to harness the wildlife we have and, and try and preserve it. Yeah, definitely. It's a really nice tip. I mean, I'm very fortunate in my garden to have hedgehogs um, that come through. and um, We've got a fence all around the mm. garden. However, there are a, a few little sort of, I don't know how, I suppose tennis ball size holes in the gravel board um, of the fence. And you certainly do see little hedgehogs coming out and about. And um, one evening I actually managed to get the camera out and take a picture of one so i'll try and dig that out and maybe put that on the show notes and yeah on the website yeah why not um my i've not had any encounters with hedgehogs in my garden but certainly the other night it was a, a, a wonderful fox um obviously i think it must have been a quite a large adult just strutting his or her stuff across the the, the field and looking okay. looking absolutely spectacular and no no uh, no gripes coming quite close to our uh, our hedge line which is a it's a holly hedge and I was just staring at this amazing animal and doing obviously no no harm at all um, don't keep chickens I used to have chickens um, many years ago in the garden but uh, so no, <laughs> no perilous uh, antics nothing there. for him to eat so no, he's strolling so. on by but Indeed, yeah but I, I think you're very uh, it's very true there that foxes are very beautiful animals and um, ultimately we do I'm living in Northampton 
we do get quite a few foxes in the town and you, you see them wandering around and um, they tend to run off. But yeah, no, I mean, urban foxes these days are a, a common occurrence in they the UK. Indeed. And I suppose uh, for our uh, Canadian listeners, um, I don't know if any of you have uh, got brown bears or black bears um, in your garden, but I know certainly when one of my friends was out in Canada, um, they... Had to, they always had problems with the bears going in the bins. And All right. It's certainly a little bit more troublesome than our urban foxes. I'd be worried about the bears actually coming running after me, I think, Peter, somehow or other. Definitely. <laughs> because it's interesting, Chris, isn't it? The fact that obviously as land becomes more valuable and garden sizes shrink, mm. the, you know, the statistics of what the modern garden is now. Yes, and uh, the uh, YouGov and the for the HTA Horticultural Trade Association have done a little bit of research, and uh, okay. they've created a nice little pie chart for us to have a look at. And yep. um, it is interesting reading that uh, of this pie chart, thirty-one percent uh, of gardens are basically a terrace or a patio garden. So, you know, quite small, quite Very modest. Small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you add that to gardens up to the size of a, a tennis court. Um, size, which is probably your, your, your sort of average size, should we say? It's a nice, yeah. Tennis courts are nice size, I'd say. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's generous, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, like you say, sixty sixty six percent of all the gardens in the UK are sort of a tennis court uh, up to a tennis court in size or smaller. Yes, it's quite a bit of a bit of land, isn't it? A bit of space, and yeah. hence that's probably why in the loft of the new builds, which are are going up all over the UK. Obviously, garden sizes are definitely shrinking, and uh, yes, not for the good, unfortunately, for our wildlife, especially, and for us to enjoy our, our outdoor spaces. Well, especially as so many modern houses, or housing estates, should I say, have mm. just got the sort of overlap panels mm. going around the edges of the garden, and as we are talking earlier, and Ed was saying about the importance of wildlife and mm. you know, if you have a hedge rather than a overlap panel or a, a chaining fence or mm. whatever your desired sort of security measure is uh, it not only can the natural hedge provide a very good form of security and possibly mm. a bigger deterrent if yeah. you've got a dog rose running through your your hedge than just some uh, at the top of an overlap panel the, 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 yeah, the wildlife can obviously pass through it and um, nest in it and um, mm-hmm. feed from it so. Indeed, and I suppose as well Peter you could also argue that creating so these wildlife corridors so if you put your your hedging plants or even climbing plants over your um over the over your your, your fences and take them perhaps above the fence height maybe on some trellis work and then run that around your garden that that might link to your neighbor's similar sort of setup that yep. will then keep the the flow of nature going there so you'll have a, a, a network of archeries green archeries of, of, of living plants yeah yeah, it's, uh, yeah well yeah. No, that's what they try and do with areas that are being deforested now mm. aren't they to rebuild the forests and the nature that goes with that is it. to you know, literally sort of 10 20 meter wide strips of um forest are replanted to join bigger forests together yeah. and suddenly Nature starts reconnecting yeah. us as if you're sort of reconnecting the arteries of um, mm. the wildlife. I mean, certainly after the uh, the rose show, I was inspired to think about planting some rose, uh, some climbing roses along mm-hmm. my fence line. Yeah. Just because, a, I love the smell of roses, and you know, that one you know, that you told us about the scent of heaven. Yes. I just thought, mm, actually, that'd be a really simple thing because not only will it make it nicer to look at the top of the hedge um, or top of the fence rather it will give me some nice flowers and some nice scents Mm. in the summer when the roses are in flower but also give nature a chance of of having another area to propagate black fly and (laughs) (laughs) some bugs uh, feeding material for the birds perhaps yeah that's it which then are obviously eaten by the uh, ladybirds that are then eaten by the sparrows and the 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 larger larger wildlife yeah Yeah. but but certainly on on the the idea of using shrubs um one plant which i think works really well uh is pyracantha but trained effectively two-dimensionally so you grow it very much wall trained okay and that can look good again Plenty, plenty of spikes, plenty of thorns to deter the uh, the wary burglar. Um, uh, <laughs> yes, indeed. So very good for that. But also, again, perfect for attracting all the uh, the pollinating insects right at the beginning of the spring when they're in full flower, which obviously they've just finished flowering now, but the berries are going to be forming. 
And of course, if you choose the right varieties, you can have a real mosaic of, of yellow, red and orange uh, berries right through the winter. So, yes, uh, that's going to feed the birds. It's going to look good. It's going to give a, a bit of shelter. Even you might even get some nesting birds in the in the depth of the hedge line you produce. Yeah. And it doesn't have to take lots of the garden. That's a very good idea, Chris. And the other benefit, I suppose, of pyracanthus is it has a nice open white flower from memory. That mm, um, very it, so. it's not the biggest flower, no. but certainly very pretty and delicate. And I should imagine the bees and the butterflies like it as well. They do. It's very prolific, and uh, yeah. So you're getting lots of interest. Of course, it's evergreen as well, so it ticks all the boxes. And I suppose with with smaller gardens, um, utilising gardens, and I'm a great believer in when you buy a plant from the garden centre or the nursery, look at its dual qualities. And never go for a plant which just perhaps just flowers, unless you really love it. Make sure it does something else, either produces berries or has good autumn colour. Good point. Or, or, or make sure it pays for its its keep. Yeah, definitely. So, Chris, obviously we've, we've learned gardens are a great place for nature and uh, obviously without uh, lots of nice plants and flowers and things, the wildlife and nature has a very hard time of it. So have you got any favourites, um, gardens that you like to visit and thinking on a wildlife... Yes, I mean, all the big gardens, so the likes of, um, I mean, Great Dixter, obviously, down in um, in Rye, near in Sussex. That's yeah. obviously the late, uh, great Christopher Lloyd's stomping ground. Um, he brought in lots of herbaceous plants, lots of roses, lots of perennial drifts, priory planting, all in his wonderful design techniques, okay. including lots of exotic plants. So by just doing that... It became a magnet for, for wildlife. So yep. I think his garden and the legacy of the way um, Great Dixter's planted is to be inspired. And if you could replicate any part of that garden, you'd be certainly on the right track for attracting a lot of really good uh, butterflies, bees, and uh, a whole lot of menageries of, of wonderful wildlife. Um, so certainly that one. And I think also when um, we talk about sort of water gardens, I went there many years ago, but Longstock Water Gardens down in, in Hampshire, right. well worth a mention, um, it looks good, you know, from the spring right through to the autumn. Okay. Big areas of, of uh, water features, beautifully planted, lots of f- fantastic marginal plants, great water lilies, so you find all the, the various um, creatures living on the pads and yeah, yeah. hop-skipping and jumping between the flowers as well. And no doubt lots of dragonflies. Is, yes. Uh, I mean, it always amazes me in my house in Northampton, which is on a hill, yeah, mm-hmm. Um the number of dragonflies you see in the garden I, I'd always associated dragonflies with water but mm. I don't think they actually do need well, part of their life cycle obviously they do need Dude. water yeah. however once they've come out of the pond uh, mm. they are then flying around and they, they don't always stay quite that close to the pond Yeah, but uh, I suppose also thinking of uh, local garden the gardens to possibly go and visit to look at wildlife Around Buckingham uh, area, it would be uh, Thenford Garden and Arboretum, which mm. is Lord Heseltine's place. Now, that's open. Not It's not all the year round, is it? No, I think it's, um, he has special dates. I think, it's, I think he opens it through the National Garden Scheme. Uh, so, yeah, if you have a look on his website, uh, they, they update that. But uh, well, worth a, well worth a visit. It's, it's huge, obviously. It's a, it's a cross between a, a very much private garden and an arboretum, but it does include some really good areas where wildlife really does take the, the major hand. And uh, it works very, very well. Um, Brilliant. I have. I will when I, I visited. I was sort of. Suge- it was suggested that it is a bit of a, a marmite garden. I said, say, well, yes, uh, you know, beauty is what it is. But some parts obviously work for some people, and some most definitely don't for others. So yep. there, there is some interesting uses of water features, which you perhaps wouldn't expect. He definitely likes to be different in his design, shall we say? Excellent. So I must try and make the time to go and have a look and wander mm-hmm. around that one then. So, Chris, you found a really interesting piece of information for us on the RSPB website, didn't you, about the most popular birds? And I know Freya and I had a fun experience of painting a bird box um, this spring and oh, we put right. it up hoping to get mm. someone move in. However, yes. I think the closest I saw was a sparrow sitting on the top of it. Right. But you know, what are the sort of most common birds in the UK at the moment? Well, the latest RSPB Big bird watcher. Many of our listeners would have had a go at uh, obviously doing the survey. Uh, I, I remember doing it back early on in the year. 
and obviously over a, a period of a, a number of minutes you just record what birds you see um so number should we go in reverse order as we yeah, yeah so at number 10 is the the long-tailed tit number nine is the magpie yep uh number eight goldfinch and number seven the great tit yep number six the robin number five the wood pigeon number four the blackbird in the top three, the starling, number two, the blue tit, and number one, the house sparrow. So the sparrow is the commonest mm. um, bird in, in uh, most likely to see in in the garden at the moment. That, that's really interesting because yeah, thinking about sort of what you, the birds you see in your bird feeder, I know, you know sort of when the goldfinches turn up, mm-hmm. um, obviously you tend to get the whole flock of them of turn course. up, and there's lo- and there's always loads of them, and that, I think it's such a beautiful bird, but they do require the special food don't they they do indeed they, they, they don't seem to bother with the fat no, fat snacks or mm. the, the common peanuts they they, they like their teasels isn't it yeah they like the niger seed don't mm. they which yeah like you say comes from teasels, teasels and right. that's what you see them on in the wild and I, I know my grandmother used to grow lots of those and then had them as what she used to dry them in the garage and have them as dried flowers yes they, they make, make quite a nice addition to dried flower arrangements yeah, and it's interesting as well, Peter. I mean, this is obviously a snapshot of of the, all the totals, but certainly in my own garden, when I was doing this good old uh, bit of uh, bird spotting, certainly um, I get a few blue tits in the garden, but mainly it's blackbirds, wood pigeon, and magpies. They tend to be the most dominant larger birds, and then the pull robins, being as as they are, they sort of muster in trying to you know to guard their territory yep. uh, from time to time but it is interesting that obviously it does vary from where you are within you know within the towns and the, and the country and and everywhere in between so it is quite an interesting uh, snapshot of what what's happening out there yeah i liked ed's solution to the, the question we had from ilkner about the what to feed uh, mm. so that you don't attract pigeons and i thought that's a very good idea actually yeah. putting uh, one of those fancy squirrel proof feeders up and then at least that way it makes it a bit difficult or even just i know we sell quite a few of the bird feeders with the cages around them mm. which again will stop the bigger birds getting in and of course the squirrel proof ones as well for those pesky grey squirrels well yeah we can you know, talk about beauty of foxes we were in the park last night and there was a couple of squirrels that i mean these days squirrels get so they're really bold as well now they are. You know, within about sort of five five ten foot of us there's a couple of squirrels and they were literally circling around the you know, the group of us and looking for food, food. i suppose yeah. but yeah not not worried at all by humans these days are they no, no, not at all. And uh, obviously they, they are an issue, but uh, we just have to sort of live with them. With so much wildlife, which can be a bit of a problem, it's it's opportunities for, for them as well. Well, yeah, I suppose that's it, isn't it? The, the, the pigeons and the squirrels and the foxes are all doing very well at the moment mm. because they, all the rubbish we leave out <laughs> yes. for them. So yes. maybe that's the trick. We need to be a bit tidier as humans. Most definitely, beings. yeah. So in a couple of Wednesdays' time, we'll be moving on to our September show. Mm. What are we going to be discussing in September, Chris? Well, we're going to be chatting, um, obviously looking at the, the wonderful world of uh, spring flowering bulbs. Okay, so that time again. again Scarily, yes. Yep. And, uh, so if uh, any of our listeners have got any questions mm. about spring bulbs, um, please do uh, email uh, them in uh, to us and we'll try and bring them up on the show. Indeed, yes, yeah, and that would be, that'd be good. And obviously we can talk... Uh, a little bit more length then uh, with our uh, bulb expert coming on further on in the, the month too. Yeah, because thinking about bulbs, uh, Chris, we've um, got an interview coming up soon, haven't we? We have indeed, yes, with a, with a bulb expert. That'll uh, be mid-September then. Mid-September. Perfect timing for your crocus and uh, obviously all the other wonderful spring flowering bulbs which will be gracing the garden centres and nurseries. And everywhere, as we see bulbs, not not just the traditional places, your supermarkets and, uh, yeah, your DIY stores. So, absolutely, yeah. it's a jam-packed time to celebrate the spring. And the best time, of course, to get them planted is through September and into October. Brilliant. Okay, Chris, well, thank you very much for the show today. And thank you. We hope you can all join us again soon. Today's show was brought to you by Buckingham Garden Centre and Nurseries. The show was hosted by Chris Day and Peter Brown. The show was produced by Peter Brown. And our thanks to Chilton Music Therapy for providing the music. Thanks for listening. At Chilton Music Therapy, we want everyone to know the difference that music can make in their lives. 
from parents and their premature babies in hospital to grandparents with dementia. We provide music therapy and community music services to people of all ages and needs across England. We work both digitally and in person in people's homes, care homes, schools, hospitals and hospices. Find out more at chilternmusictherapy.co.uk.